0: In the United States, and uh, this last Sunday, and timing is very important in football. Uh, I know Peyton Manning, my guy uh, from uh, many years at Indianapolis, that uh, he would go out and he would just throw footballs uh, to players, and they would go over and over and over again because they're trying to get the timing down. Uh, there's times where a quarterback will throw it before the wide receiver is even turned because he knows that wide receiver is going to turn, and he's going to turn in this position, and those wide receivers have that football right in their arms before they even see what is happening because they practice, and you can tell uh, when teams have not practiced because it's terrible, all right? It's, it's, uh, it's awful, all right? And so timing is important in, in that, but timing is mo- important in not just sports but in life, we look at our lives and, and we see that timing uh, can play an important fact, uh, we a factor uh, when we uh, go to buy important things. All right, timing is important. Uh, if you want to buy a plane ticket to go anywhere, uh, there's actually a website you can go to that'll tell you when is the best time to buy those plane tickets. All right, sometimes uh, it'll be three months out, sometimes it'll be five months out, sometimes it'll be three weeks out. All right, but sometimes, a lot of times, you don't want to wait till the last minute because right, the plane won't be there or the ticket will be outrageous. All right, and so it's, it's important sometimes when we buy these uh, large purchase items uh, to buy them at the right time. You know, you never want to buy technology when it first comes out because it's super expensive. All right, for example, a 20-inch uh, LCD TV in 1999 when they first came out was $1,200. All right, 20-inchers, inches. right, that's like this big. All right, $1,200 for this big of a TV, okay? And that seems crazy because now you can get a 20-inch LCD TV for $100. I mean, I got a 50-incher for $200, right? So that's like that big or something like that. All right, so buying technology when it first comes out is expensive. All right, VCRs, all right, if you remember VCRs, 1984 is when they first come out, $500 for a VCR, in 1984 that's a lot of money in nineteen eighty four dollars all right now if you can find them uh, if you know what they are, all right twenty dollars <laughs> Tyler Tyler in the back's like, "I know what they are I know what they are you have one okay twenty dollars if you can find it all right or you can go to the the, the resale shop and I'm sure they have one hopefully it's working all right so so technology every I mean timing is important when you buy things timing's important in relationships as well all right many of us uh, maybe not, I shouldn't say many, I struggled in in elementary, in junior high, with my timing in relationships, okay, Uh, you had those dances you had to take a date to, and I remember in eighth grade, uh, spring dance, I went to the girl that I had a crush on, and I said, hey, will you go with me to this dance, and she said, I would, but I just got asked last period by this other guy, you know, and and that's a bad timing on my part, but timing, uh, it can be important, luckily my wife, timing was perfect, right, wife? Okay, <laughs> Micah. Mike, uh, Micah, Mike, timing is important. Okay, all right. So, uh, so I think in everything, timing uh, can best be seen in synchronized events. Right? Uh, synchronized diving, synchronized swimming. Uh, we see these people spend lots and lots of times to do something at the exact same time. Uh, lots of practice to do that, and so uh, we we see these this importance of timing. Uh, Well, as Doug said, uh, we are going to be talking about timing today, and and most importantly, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, God's timing in our lives. We're in this series that we've called The Grave Robber. Um, Basically, we're looking at the seven miracles that John records for us uh, in the Gospel of John. So today we're going to be in John chapter 4, looking at the second miracle uh, at the very end of John chapter 4. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to uh, open them up and follow along as we uh, read together. Uh, John is the fourth gospel, the fourth story of Jesus. It's, it's the fourth book in the New Testament. Um, and so that should help you find it if you don't know where it's at. And we're going to use uh, these first couple of verses as our scene setter. All right. And so here's what it says, uh, starting in verse 43. It says, After two days he left for Galilee. Uh, Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet had no honor in his own country. And verse 45 says, When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Uh, They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they had been there as well. All right, so this is our, kind of our scene, okay? Uh, we didn't necessarily read what took place between uh, the first miracle and, and this, the second miracle, uh, but it is important to understand what's going on in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, so just briefly, bear with me as we kind of recap what's happened. All right, Jesus, uh, his first miracle was turning water into wine at the town of Cana, uh, and, and after that, he heads to Jerusalem. All right, there's a Passover feast, all right, one of the uh, important feasts in the life of the Jews, and Jesus goes to Jerusalem to celebrate that feast. Uh, it's the first of four Passovers that John records, and that's where we kind of get uh, our three and a half year ministry for Jesus, is because John tells us there was four Passover feasts. All right, so yeah, three and a half years, four feasts. Okay, uh, and so that's that's what this is, and and, and Jesus kind of uses this Passover feast as a introduction to himself. Right. John the Baptist had been going around preaching, turning people to God uh, for a couple of years, but he'd been pointing the entire time to the Messiah. He says, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And so Jesus, when he gets to Jerusalem, kind of says, hey, I'm here to start my ministry. And he does that by clearing out the temple. And if you ever read this scene, he, he, we, we're told that he turns over the tables, uh, and John tells us he makes a little whip, all right? And he doesn't really tell us if he's whipping the people that are selling the animals or the animals themselves, all right? So you can kind of picture him whipping these people and telling them to get out of the temple, all right? And, and, and when he does this, he gains a lot of people that are excited. They're like, yes, finally someone is standing up. Now, a lot of people are tired of what's going on. You know, they're they're bringing these perfectly good animals, selling them to the temple because they find a blemish, and then going and buying those same animals back because now they're perfect somehow, all right? So, So they're tired of this scheme that is going on, and Jesus kind of gets rid of it. But as he's making people that are excited friends, all right, he's also making enemies because the religious establishments at the time, they... They were allowing this fiasco to go on. They were the ones making money often, so they're not very happy that Jesus is doing this. And so by the time Jesus leaves at the beginning of chapter 4, uh, he's leaving kind of with people on his heels. And so rather than going the normal way that Jews went from Judea to Galilee, he goes straight through an area called Samaria. Uh, and the Samaritans and the, and the Jews, they didn't really get along all too well, all right? The only thing uh, that was worse for a Jew than a non-Jew was a half-Jew, and Samaritans were half-Jews. And in their history, there was a lot of conflict, and so uh, they just kind of avoided each other. The Jews did everything they could, even walking extra 30 or 40 miles to get around this area, all right? And so they tried to avoid it, and, but Jesus, he walks through it and uh, he doesn't just walk through it, he starts to talk to people, and he starts to tell them about the Messiah, and he starts to uh, stay there, and we're told he stays there for two days, so he stays two days out of his journey, all right, this time that he would have, that he was saving by not going around, he, w- he kind of uses it up right there, and so he is, that's where we're at in the story, he's leaving Samaria, uh, and he's coming to Galilee. Now, John kind of gives us this parenthetical notes, okay, it's not it's not necessary for the story. He's just kind of telling us, hey, a prophet is without honor in his hometown. And that's true, is it not? I mean, how many of you have tried to go to your friends and tell them about Jesus? I, I think the hardest people to talk to about Jesus isn't strangers. All right? Those are easy. All right? People that you may never see again. All right? It's the people that know you. you know? The people that you grew up with. The people that you did things with that you probably shouldn't have done. All right, they're the ones that were beside, on your, by your side doing them to get with you. All right, and those are the people that it's hard to talk to because when you go to talk to them, they kind of like, I know who you are. That's, I don't care. You're lying. I don't believe you. All right, and so that's kind of what Jesus is saying here is, is the prophets without honor. And, and we all do this internally. I mean, I do it at least. I don't know about you, but I do it internally. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Derek Hall. Uh, and I will edit that last name out of the sermon. All right, but Derek, uh, he was a jerk. All right, he, he grew up four houses down from me. Uh, he was a year older and a lot stronger, and he just picked on everyone. He was a bully. All right, and, and I remember Derek would, would literally come to me and beat me up just because he could. All right, and uh, the other day on Facebook, I saw that Derek Hall had gotten an award from the county uh, for an outstanding achievement as a county deputy. I saw that, and I'm like, what? How did you, first off, how did you become a police officer? All right, that was my first initial reaction. And then secondly, no offense, Doug, but that was my first, or or KP, that was my first reaction. And my second reaction was, how did you get outstanding achievements? Like, that doesn't even make sense, it was not making sense to me, you know, even though we're, 10, 15 years removed from everything that happened, it still wasn't making sense to me. All right? and, and that's kind of, I think, what happens when we're talking about this. And for Jesus, that happens. All right? John will not record it in his gospel. That's why it's kind of a, a parenthetical note here. All right? But the other gospels record how John, or Jesus comes back to his hometown, in Nazareth, and he tries to talk to them in the synagogue and teach them, and they reject him because they're looking at him like, you're that carpenter's son. Right, you're you're nobody important, and they reject Jesus, and right, so that's kind of why that is there. Uh, but what we do see when he does come into Galilee is that the Galileans are excited. Why are they excited? Because they saw everything that Jesus did in Jerusalem. All right, they were there. All right, the Jews uh, they had three feasts that they had to go to Jerusalem for and by this time they really only chose one to go to and for the Galileans uh, it was Passover and they would travel together to the Passover and so there's a lot of people that saw Jesus turn over the tables and whip uh, the animals and people out of uh, out of the temple court and they're excited about what Jesus is doing and so when he comes back home they're ready to accept him at least some of them are. Right, and it's into this scene of excitement uh, that we're introduced to a guy in verse 46. In verse 46 we read, uh, once more he visited, talking about Jesus, he visited Cana in Galilee where he had turned water into wine. And there, were, there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. And when he, this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and he begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. And Jesus, in verse 48, says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. And so what, what we were introduced here is this man uh, that is a royal official. all right, and, and, and we see that Jesus is coming back to Cana. Uh, probably to say goodbye. Remember, this is probably where his family and friends are from. Uh, And and so he's saying goodbye to him before. This is the last time that we're told that Jesus is in this area. And this royal official comes all the way from Capernaum to Cana to see Jesus. This royal official, the, the term there is a very unique term. It's not very used very often, except I think in this passage. And it means to belong to the king. All right, so whether it's a servant or just a high-ranking official, this man, uh, he has uh, a really high standing in the society that he lives in. Right, and, and, and you can just kind of see that tragedy has hit him. Because even though he's high in society, he isn't free from the various things that affect us all. You know, tragedy, death, sickness, it doesn't care if, who you are, whether you're poor or whether you're rich. It doesn't care if you're a nobody or if you're the President of the United States. Tragedy can affect any one of us at any point in time. And so this royal official, his tragedy is his son who is sick to the point of death. Man, how would that affect him? I kind of imagine this guy that has a lot of money and a lot of influence and he probably has a lot of resources to call all the doctors from Capernaum and all the doctors in the surrounding region to come to his son. And yet, all these doctor visits, nothing is happening to make his son better. And I kind of picture a guy who's at his end. He has no idea where else to turn. And so he turns to this guy named Jesus. And he goes 20 miles out of his way. All right, it's, not, it's not like jumping in a car and going to Centralia. All right, it's walking 20 miles or riding a horse 20 miles. I mean, it's over a day's journey. And he arrives at Jesus, and he gets to Jesus, and he gets on his knees, and he begs. What a scene this must have been. I mean, all these people have a pretty good idea who he is, just by the way he's dressing. And here he is, this very high official, this very high man in society coming to a carpenter and kneeling before him and saying, please, come. I beg you, come. I mean, what type of pride must have been swallowed by this man to come before Jesus and to beg him, come? See, God God doesn't owe us his rescue. And what I mean by that is this, is that God doesn't, have to rescue us. I mean, a lot of times I feel like we, uh, in our lives, get to a point where we've done so much for God, and, and when tragedy strikes, we say to God, God, you des- we deserve to be healed. We deserve to be rescued from this situation. I mean, who knows who this man is, but he understands that he doesn't deserve Jesus to come. He's coming begging, humbled before Jesus. It didn't. He could have came as an official and said, you are coming with me now, but he doesn't. And when we need to be rescued by God, we should have this attitude of humbleness. Begging God, come, please. Well, Jesus' response seems a little heartless. I mean, Jesus hears this guy begging him, and he says, unless you people believe, uh, or unless you get people to see signs, you'll never believe. And I can seem a little heartless. Here's this man, his son is sick, and all you're doing is condemning the crowd. And yes, that's, that's somewhat of what Jesus is doing, but it also plays into what John is trying to do in his book. All right, this idea that Jesus talks here, it's going to be a theme throughout his entire book. He's going to talk about believing without seeing. Believing without seeing. At the very end of his book, John talks about the doubting Thomas. And Thomas comes and says, I won't believe that Jesus is raised from the dead unless I see and feel his wounds. And then Jesus, after he shows himself to Thomas, says, blessed is he who believes and yet has not seen i mean it's just a constant theme and when we realize that john is writing to people 60 years removed from jesus there's a lot of people that probably are having to have faith without seeing what had happened and so it's a constant thing throughout it it just appears here that jesus is wanting us to understand that we need to have faith without seeing so yes it's a condemnation of the crowd but it's also a test and the man responds this way in verse 49. He says, The royal official says, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus replies, Go, your son will live. And the man took Jesus at his word and departed. The, the crazy thing about John's miracles from this point on is that almost every single one of them is going to have a long dialogue talking about a lesson that we can learn from the miracle. There is a lesson that we learn in this miracle, and it's this believing without seeing. And it's just a short one-verse lesson. This man, he believes that Jesus can heal his child. Why? I mean, I don't think he was in Jerusalem. I mean, if my son was that sick, I'd be by his side, even if I was supposed to be somewhere else. I'd be by his side, hoping and willing him to get better. And I picture this man, even as the festival of Passover is going on, he is by his son's side in Capernaum, hoping and willing his son to be healed. And so he never saw Jesus do anything. But there's a lot of other people that did. See, John will record seven miracles, and he does it so that we can have faith that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, but it doesn't mean that Jesus only did seven miracles. In fact, at the end of chapter 2 of John, after Jesus has cleared the temple, we're told that Jesus does many signs, a word for miracle in the Bible, many signs that the people could see. And so this man, even though he never witnessed it, heard all these stories of his friends and family coming back from Jerusalem saying, Listen there was this guy, and he did awesome things. And so he's coming to Jesus, never seeing Jesus do a single thing, and he knows deep down that Jesus can heal his son. And so when he begs Jesus, when he turns the conversation back to his son, and he sees Jesus, just give him a simple thing, go, leave, your son will be healed. The man's reaction is, to go. What faith that must have been. I mean, this man doesn't have a cell phone to call back home and see what's happening with his child. This man didn't have Skype or FaceTime. This man didn't have emails or fax machines. And yet, living 20 miles over a day and a half's journey away, he still believed that Jesus was going to do what he said. That is faith without seeing. And we're told that uh, in verse 51, while he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And we inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And so he and his whole household believe. And John ends this story with this. This is the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea, from Galilee. from, From Judea to Galilee. And we see in this story the perfect timing of God displayed through Jesus. I mean, this is a man that probably spent incalculable amount of time an incalculable amount of riches trying to get his son better and yet jesus in his timing said hey it, it's going to be taken care of from a distance doing something that no one had ever seen before or even heard before and yet jesus does this at the right time at this exact time in a synchronized healing type of way and that's who jesus was and the end result is faith. I mean, not only does this man believe, but his entire household believes. All his servants understood what had happened. This man wasn't a guy that just came to God and said, God, please give me this, and then went on his life once he got it. No, this man had faith that probably lived out through the rest of his life because he knew who Jesus was. He knew he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And our lives can be reflected in this man. I mean, we are in desperate straits just like this man was. While it's not necessarily physical death that we often face, we face spiritual death. And like this man, we need to come before God and kneel before him and beg for the healing that only Jesus can give. Too many times we spend an inordinate amount of time searching for something to heal our brokenness, looking for things that are solutions to the problems that we find inside ourselves. And the result is nothing. We get no closer to being healed when we look for things outside of Jesus. But in Jesus, we can find true healing for our brokenness. And the response that we should have once we have healing in our lives is faith that lives it out. I mean, this man, it could not have been easy for him to have this faith with his position. He's working for a king who beheads John the Baptist, who is scared of Jesus, who puts Jesus on trial and sends him back to Pilate rather than setting him free. And this man is working in this court, having faith that Jesus is the Messiah, this long-awaited king of the Jews. How hard would that have been? And yet he lives with it. And we too, when we have healing in our lives, need to live our lives with faith not just happy that we're fixed, but sharing it with the world because the world is just as broken as we are. We're to be lights that reflect this healing power that Jesus has to this world because they need to know just as much as we know. Because Jesus is the only thing that can heal them, just like he was the only thing that could heal us. He is the synchronized healer. And we need to have faith even though we don't see. And we need to share that faith with others as well. Will you pray with me? Gracious Father, we are again grateful for Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross and His willing to freely heal us. A lot of times, Lord, we look for things that we do not even know what the right answer is. We look for solutions where we should not. We look for the timing in our own timing rather than in yours. For that, one, I'm sorry. And I pray, Father, that each of us can look into ourselves and see our brokenness and see that the only way uh, we are healed is through you. Before, through coming to you humbly on our knees and asking for forgiveness. I just pray right now for us that are here that have been healed, that we will uh, turn to you and and, and shine our lights to this world and show them what it means to have faith, even though we don't see who you are or what you've done. I pray for those who are broken still, that they uh, will come before you and find the healing that they need. Lord, you are magnificent and awesome. It's to you that we've seen and worship this morning. Amen.